0: to show the practical application of doctrine. Now, there are a few wonderful exceptions, like the book uh, by Bruce Ware on the Trinity. It's a great book. We're going to put that into the library, and uh, there are a few other books that have uh, made uh, some good attempts at that. But by now, I hope you see in the series of sermons that the doctrine of the Trinity has enormous implications for life. There's a book that I want to you guys to read. most of the applications I've made so far have been to the family and to the church, maybe a little bit to business, but uh, I would encourage you to read the book by R.J. Rushduni entitled The Foundations of Social Order. And then there's a subtitle, Studies in the Creeds and Councils of the Early Church. This is a brilliantly written book. Um, It's not very easy reading, but it's definitely rewarding reading. And in this book, Rush Dooney shows how the early creeds of the church were at war with a pagan culture and how they eventually transformed that pagan culture. Uh, another author by the name of Gary North said, Trinitarianism is the only creed which offers liberty to man. It is the foundation of the West's social order and therefore the foundation of Western liberty, unquote. And so it's not by accident that Hindu cultures or Muslim cultures do not have anywhere near the freedoms and the liberties that uh, Christian cultures do or the West used to have. And it's not by accident that as Christianity has been waning in the West, so too have the liberties of the West been waning. There are many other authors who have had the same conclusion in ages past. Here's a, an older author, Philip Schaff. He said the Council of Nicaea, maybe just for. Uh, clarification. That was the first council that began to wrestle through the doctrines that we have been looking at. So he says, the Council of Nicaea is the most important event of the fourth century, and its bloodless intellectual victory over a dangerous error is a far greater consequence to the true progress of true civilization, not just to doctrine, but to true civilization, than all the bloody victories of Constantine and his successors. Now that may seem like a gross exaggeration, but I tell you, after you've been studying the implications of the of the doctrine of the Trinity, you begin to realize the West would not be what it is today if it had not been formed and framed through people thinking through these majestic doctrines that we need to study and we need to understand. Now let me just give a brief review of the uh, three main points of Trinitarianism we looked at in our first sermon just to point the way to show some of these practical ramifications. We've already seen that the first essential feature of Trinitarian doctrine is that there is only one true God. We do not believe in three gods. We're monotheistic. So Deuteronomy 6 verse 4 says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Deuteronomy 32 verse 39, There is no God besides me. John seventeen three speaks of the only true God, and we gave a ton of other scriptures indicating there's not three gods, there's only one God. Now, there's enormous ramifications to that doctrine, that there's only one God. We've not even remotely begun to uh, touch upon. Just think of what happens to a culture that the predominant belief is that there are many gods out there. We call that polytheism, poly being many, so polytheism. In the thinking of such a culture, there is no unifying center of existence or of thought, because all things do not derive from one God, right? And so, if that were true, it would destroy any motivation in people to try to discover any unified meaning in life. Why would you try to discover it if there is no central source from which all things would come? And without a unifying center, almost all of the disciplines in a university would be challenged and destroyed you wouldn't have a university you'd have a diversity or you'd have a polyversity and uh, it, it's not by accident that all of the major universities of the world have started and have flourished in monotheistic cultures not in polytheistic cultures in monotheistic cultures and um, it's uh, not by accident that things are changing in america and, pre- and present universities Universities don't even pretend to try to have a unified meaning in life. They've got such disparity amongst the different uh, disciplines. There's no unified view of things, and yet here in America, there's still enough hunger for higher knowledge uh, that these universities, I think, can make a, a living because I think we cannot shake off of our culture the vestiges of Christianity any more than we can shake it off of our dollar bill that it says one nation under God. And so for a long time after a nation ceases to be Christian, what Christianity started continues to have an influence in in various cultures. But the pervasive religion of a culture affects that culture's quest for knowledge. Let's just look at the issue of science. Polytheism destroys any vision for science because there is no one God from whom all laws of physics, you know, who could give laws of physics or laws of morality or any other laws like laws of of logic. Instead, what you have is you've got many gods who are competing with each other and who are themselves subject to the limitations of time and space and matter and their own limited powers. In Volume 2 of The Meaning of Science, Stanley White says this, Some have pondered why the ancients never created a formal science. The answer lies in the fact that polytheism is not compatible with science. The ancients, such as Aristotle, viewed the world as a series of unrelated events. They did not see an overall pattern in nature or the universe. Unquote. They could not because there was no one God from whom all things came into existence. I know of no polytheistic culture that believes in a creation ex nihilo. That's Latin for meaning created out of nothing to god created just by the word of his power he didn't take pre-existing matter and so what you have in those cultures is the belief that matter is just as eternal actually more eternal than the gods themselves and so how do things come into existence in every polytheistic culture it's evolutionary form of thought they have various theories but it's all evolutionary Well, immediately, as soon as you begin to realize that, you begin to realize, wow, that's going to profoundly affect the way they think about life. You can immediately think of all kinds of uh, implications. We believe that time was created. Polytheists do not. They cannot believe that it is created. And so the gods are just as subject to time as humans are. Here's another example. In polytheism, the gods are vying with each other for your affection and attention, which immediately means there are no absolutes for life. Because what the polytheist is going to be asking is, okay, which God's morality do I follow? There is no unifying source for morality, right? And so what polytheistic cultures tend to have is a, 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 a drift toward pluralism uh, over time. <coughs> Polytheism uh, would say things like this, well, that's right for you and something that's totally opposite, that's right for me, this is right for me. That that would be the kind of things that they would say. And so there would be a pluralism, and you might wonder why our own culture has drifted to pluralism, to me it's very, very clear, where once Christianity was the dominant religion and politicians wouldn't dare to oppose Christianity, even if they were not Christians themselves. In fact, that's one of the books that Tocqueville, when he wrote that book, he said it it breeds hypocrisy in politicians because they have to pretend to be Christians, you know. So the predominant world view was that, but over the past 50 years, we've gone into a situation where where all religions have been elevated to an equal status, and the only religion that's put down is uh, a religion like our own, you know, where uh, we think that there was only one right way. We're Cretans, you know, in their their eyes, where they maybe if if things are going well. If things are not going well, they won't tolerate us. But if things are going well, they have a bemused smile and they say, "Well, this person, you know, thinks his is the only way, and his God is the only, you know, possible God." So they tolerate us. But Scripture holds to the theology or the philosophy known as dogmatism. Okay, dogmatism. That there is only one true God, only one true way, there's only one source of truth, there's only one definition of truth, and that is so contrary to the way the intellectuals in America think. In fact, even the religious leaders of today have bought into pluralism, and they get very uncomfortable when you talk like that, and yet that's exactly the language of Scripture. Anyway, it doesn't amaze me at all. That we have become pluralistic in America because we have officially become a polytheistic nation where all nations are, tra- I mean all religions are treated equally. Christianity is not given the preference. That's polytheism. You know, they may not believe in all of those different gods. Each one has their own, but they respect them all equally. Polytheism affects your view of history. Since polytheism does not believe that there is one God who predestinates the future, they can't because there's all kinds of gods fighting with each other. And they don't believe that there is one God who controls all of history. In polytheistic nations, this is what you find. You find people who think history has no meaning. No meaning whatsoever. Uh, They tend to be circular in their view of history. Things just keep repeating themselves. You're just kind of like on a rat race and you're hoping you can get off at some point. Whereas monotheistic religions tend to be linear in their view of history. By linear, it means that there's a start and there's an end. You're going towards a goal. By the way, communism follows a monotheistic approach. In this case, it's the state who replaces the god, but they're very monotheistic in their view of history and their view of everything else. They are linear. They believe eventually all of history is driving toward a goal and communism is inevitable, you know, for all of the nation's. Uh, of this world. And so it's different than Christianity, but it is a kind of monotheism. Now obviously I can't outline all of the implications that would happen if you deny monotheism, but it is pervasive. Psalm 50 begins with these words. The mighty one, God the Lord has spoken and called the earth from the rising of the sun to its going down. And then he gives the implications of the fact that all things in this universe owe their existence to this one God. And what are the things that it concludes? It concludes the fact that only God can guarantee that there will be uh, consistent sanctions in history. And the psalm talks about a final judgment and where all rights will be made wrong. Only the fact that there is monotheism can guarantee that there are consistent laws that God applies to all nations and all times. I mean you read Psalm 50 in light of the doctrine of monotheism and it just comes to light. You begin to realize, wow, yeah, there are applications, there are implications of this doctrine. So the first important part of the definition of the Trinity is that there is only one God. Second part of the definition we looked at in the first sermon is that this one God is three persons, three self-consciousnesses, the Father, the Son, And the holy spirit and we looked at quite a number of scriptures and the one i read from uh, isaiah 48 is one of my favorite ones Uh, it's god the son speaking he's already been identified as divine as being the one who created the world he's the first he's the last and then in verse 16 he says come near to me hear this i've not spoken in secret from the beginning from the time that it was i was there So he creates time. In other words, he says in any beginning to have been begun, I, the son of God was already there. But then in the next phrase, he says, and now the Lord God, that's Adonai and his spirit have sent me. And so there are three persons, each of whom are called God relating to one another. We looked at other scriptures saying that they talk to one another, they defer to one another, they plan, they minister. And so there are three distinct persons in the Godhead, and yet we saw that there are not three gods, but one God. There are not three lords, but one Lord. And again, there are enormous implications of this doctrine. It transforms even simple, mundane things like love. First John 4, 8 says, He who does not love does not know God, for God is love. He is saying that our love comes from knowing God's love. Well, how does God love? Well, if you are a Unitarian, before there was a creation or people to love, to express this love for and to relate to, then the only person to love would be yourself. And so it would be a selfish love, a self-oriented love. And you look at Unitarian countries and cultures, they are dominated by a self-oriented love. Now, in polytheistic countries, you've got a different situation. There, you've got the gods who are vying for each other's love and vying for the attention and the love of people. And so imitating their love brings conflict and brings competition. It's quite a different uh, concept. But the true God, the God of the Bible, the God who is one God in three persons, he he is the source. The fact that he is one shows he's the source of the definition of love, of ethics, of everything else. But it also shows, because he is three persons, that his love is not selfish. The love is constantly going out to the other persons of the Trinity. It's a self-giving love, a self-sacrificial love. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. That's John 3, 16. Then in verse 13 of the same chapter, it says, The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. And then it talks about the Father loving the Son because the Son has the same kind of love self-sacrificial love that the Father has. John ten seventeen. Therefore, my Father loves me because I lay down my life. And so there you have in the Trinity a pattern for what kind of love that we have. It's a self-giving love, a self-sacrificial love, a totally unselfish love. Your view, some, most of the time it's unconsciously how our, our theology, our worldview affects our living, but it does. Whether you think it through or whether it's unconsciously done, it affects your life. There are many other implications. Because Christians see the equal ultimacy of unity and diversity in the Godhead, in other words, it's just as important that God is one God as that there are three persons in the Godhead. There's an equal ultimacy. Neither is higher than the other. Because of that, there is a tendency to see a corresponding balance of unity and diversity within culture. Unitarian countries have tended to err strongly in the direction of imposing unity. Polytheistic cultures have tended in the opposite direction of imposing a rigid diversity. Uh, And both Muslims and Hindus, by the way, agree with that assessment. They actually think it's uh, good. They they think this is an ideal. I've read um, essays by both Unitarians and polytheists who see their position of either monolithic sameness or pluralism as being the ideal. In contrast, the most free countries in the world have been Calvinistic. But any Christian country is going to tend to raise the amount of liberties and uh, freedoms that Christians experience. Christian nations have historically been the least racist, the least class conscious, the most prosperous of nations. Uh, One very strongly Unitarian writer, and he is no friend of Christianity, his whole essay was... Uh, written against it but he said that unitarianism that's not not trinitarianism but unitarianism where there's a radical unity without any plurality it said this quote it leads to a desire to control both public behavior and private thoughts while polytheism when resorting to violence seeks control over the public sphere only and i think generally he is absolutely correct in that uh, Hindus in India, they're content to just control the government. If they can have control of the government, they're happy. Whereas Muslims, man, they're trying to control everything that's going on in the home and everything. What, what you wear, it's a monolithic sameness that they're trying to impose. By the way, you see the same conflict, uh, contrast between communism on the one hand and, uh, say, what's another polytheistic? Animism on the other hand. With With communism, they go down even to thought control. They want you to be brainwashed. They want you to think the same way. It's a total monolithic sameness that they're trying to impose, whereas there's a fragmentation of society in animistic cultures. Here's another author said, quote, whereas in polytheism, the rivalry between the gods makes the ascendancy of one god impossible, monotheism leads to an inescapable logic of universal power. While polytheism resists the idea of unifying truth, thereby producing social fragmentation, monotheism will tend to totalitarianism, unless it is modified, as it is in the Judeo-Christian tradition. I found it interesting that he saw Christianity being the exception amongst the monotheistic religions. Now, if you want a good contrast of cultures, think of the difference between Unitarian Saudi Arabia, which is about as pure Muslim as you can get, and think of polytheistic uh, India which is Hindu predominantly Saudi Arabia like other Muslim countries tor- tends toward a monolithic sameness in the culture where both your public and your private life is controlled and everyone is made to conform to one standard in contrast I said that India uh, tends to impose a rigid diversity uh, polytheistic religion of hinduism has created a class a whole series of classes of people and you can't escape from one class into another you're rigidly locked into the diversity that they have created there and what that has done over the past thousand years it's been incredibly repressive and it's robbed people of any initiative to advance themselves economically socially educationally in any other way until The British brought in some Christian ideas and Christian different ways of doing things. The people have tended to be extremely passive in India. Some people say lazy, but it's their worldview, really, which affects that. Now, Islam, on the other hand, is a Unitarian religion, and it tends to impose a zealous conformity on the people in every detail. You look and you read in the Quran, and you talk to Muslims, and they've got rules on how to bathe and how to cut your toenails and... Uh, you know, how to do just about everything. There's just a monolithic sameness that they want to impose. Very little incentive to self-initiative, but enormous motivation to proselytize and to impose their views on culture. Now, if you wanted to, you could make the same contrast between, like I said, communism and um, and um, animism. Christianity gets in trouble with everybody because they get in trouble with uh, the... The, the monolithic, uh, you know, Unitarians, because both of them say we're the only way. There's only one right way of doing things. They get in trouble with the pluralists like the, the Hindus because the Hindus don't like the dogmatism of saying there's only one way. They want to impose many ways, right? And so it doesn't matter where we are. We're getting in trouble with the other world views. And so both extremes rob people of their freedoms. Both extremes are intolerant of Christianity only christianity has given the balance and culture between unity and diversity now let's just look at that in the church in the church we see that the god who values the differences between father son and holy spirit also values the differences that exist within the church in first corinthians chapter 12 uh, God says that he doesn't like it when people try to stamp everybody into a cookie cutter mold. He says, no, I want you to value the eye and the ear and the foot. Each one is important. I have made diversity. I glory in the diversity that occurs in the church. And yet there is a unity in the church. We're all part of the same bride, the same body. Uh, we're united to Christ. We're committed to one another. And so there's that which unites us and yet values the differences that are among us. Now, you extrapolate that out into culture, which I'm not going to take the time to do today, and you will see that there are, are enormous applications. You'll see why authors have said it's in Trinitarian countries that have valued the free market the most. It's Trinitarian countries that have valued competition, different ideas, different ways of doing things. And uh, you'll have to read Rushduni to see how that plays out. The third part of the definition of the Trinity that we looked at in sermon. Number one is that Father, son and Holy Spirit are each fully God They're equally God Okay, the, none of them has less attributes or less glory uh, They're all equally omnipotent uh, The father is not older than the son because he's an eternal father and the son is an eternal son And if they're both eternal they can't be older than each other they're both uh, necessitate each other right and it says that the spirit is eternal hebrews 9:14 and so we saw that on every level they are fully god you should not see god the father is a third of god and the son is a third and the holy spirit is another third no each of them fully god in fact if you want to use an illustration just draw a circle that's god the father and trace right over the top of that Black line, a blue line, that's God the Son. And trace over top of that, a yellow line, that's God the Holy Spirit. They're all fully God. There is no subordination of nature amongst the persons of the Trinity. Okay. In the early church, there were many heresies that came in that tried to subordinate the Son and the Spirit in various ways to the Father. Actually, there's one heresy that tries to subordinate the Father and the Spirit to the Son, Um, Christonomy. uh, uh uh, it, it, it's called, but uh, most of the early heresies were in some way subordinating the various, the various uh, the Son and the Spirit in some way to the Father, making them less God than the Father was. And uh, I, I'm going to let you read Rushdoony to see how all of that plays out because it's pretty intricate. Some of the different doctrinal clarifications that the Church had to uh, come up with. But I really think every person in this church needs to own that book and read it. It's that good. Okay, The Foundations of Social Order by R.J. Rushdoony. What I want to do in closing, though, is to summarize a few principles that I think we can learn uh, concerning those heresies. You might wonder, why in the world would people argue about heresy when it's so clear in the Scripture? We've seen it. it was just clearly there in the Bible. Why would they argue about that? Well, I think they argue about it is because we're not just wrestling with flesh and blood. We're wrestling with demon powers who are doing everything they can to subvert the true doctrines of the church. Um, The apostles, Christ predicted that uh, heretics would come in and try to take over the church. Here's what the apostles said. Peter said, but there were also false prophets among the people, even as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies. Notice the word secretly. Heretics don't wear a big sign that says, look at me, I'm a heretic, you know, I'm different than you guys. No, they want to appear to be Christians, right? They come in secretly to hide the fact that they're not really Christians. They claim to be Christians all the while undermining the Christianity that they have supposedly adopted. That's the strategy of Satan. Satan. Paul said, I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Also, from among yourselves, men will rise up, speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after themselves. Therefore, watch. We need to watch. That's what the early Orthodox pastors were doing when they argued with the heretics, when they came up with the creed. They were watching. They were warning people and they were trying to protect god's people they knew the practical ramifications of true doctrine and they knew the devastating effects of holding to false doctrine and so why does god allow these heresies to creep into the church that's the question i asked myself when i was younger and you know the ironic answer in the scripture is god does it for our good he does it to cause us to mature to get into adulthood because if we didn't have those heresies to to face you know, many of us are lazy, would never dig into the scriptures and the way that we have to dig to grow in our understanding of God and His Word and His purposes. And so God, ironically, has used that to grow the church up more and more into adulthood. Uh, 1 Corinthians eleven nineteen, Paul said, For there must also be heresies among you, that those who are approved may be recognized among you. And so God brings good out of evil. And you know, the way that false doctrines crept in back then, is exactly the way they creep in today uh, the false teachers will initially say that they believe the doctrines that you believe you know you say that um, you know that Jesus is God and they will say oh yeah yeah we believe Jesus is God and they're thinking in their head well yeah he's I guess he's sort of a God or he's like God but you know he's different but they will affirm what you are affirming or uh, you say he's the son of God and they they think well yeah he's the son of God but so are we and they just don't tell you all of the mental reservations that they have. And then the Orthodox recognize what they're doing. And so they they add words and they say, okay, the Bible says he is the only begotten Son of God. Don't be claiming to be God, in this, I mean, the Son of God in the same way that Jesus is. He's the only begotten Son of God. And then they would redefine terms and they would say, yes, we can affirm that too. But they gave totally different definitions to the terms that they were using it. And they knew it. They were being deceitful just as the wolves in sheep's clothing today, are deceitful. At the Council of Nicaea, there was a word that they put in there. uh, It was homoousion. It's a Greek word that means that Jesus had the same nature as the Father. Okay, He was of the identical essence with the Father. Well, as the sheet was being signed around for the pastors to say, yes, we affirm this, uh, one heretic just stuck a little I. It's a real small letter, iota, In there, and so instead of saying homoousion, it said homoiousion. And homoiousion means he's like the father. Now, the big bulk of people that were in there, who were Christians, they were uh, good guys, they thought, well, I guess that's a nice compromise because he isn't the father. And so if you're saying that he's like the father, that ought to be good enough, shouldn't it? And yet it was a huge barn door open that you could drive a truck through and the heretics were driving their trucks through and so the orthodox people in arguing with them had to close off that door and say no it has to be homoseon identical nature and here's the frustrating thing in every era in every era nice guys tend to be the majority and they tend to be clueless as to how damaging and devastating false doctrine can be. And their attitude is, why do we have to fight? You know, why can't we just love one and I'm these guys saying, Jesus is like the father. I mean, what are you making such a big deal about? And they were, these true believers were more of a frustration to the Orthodox pastors than the heretics were. The heretics, they could handle, but it was these Orthodox people in between who were voting on issues that they were trying to have to convince this is serious stuff we're in a fight for our lives why can't you see this and i see that's exactly the same way that it's happening today people have this attitude what's the big deal they're christians you know and if you're not against christ you're for christ and they'll quote passages out of out of context why can't we just love one another and you just have to face up to the fact that if you're a reformer people will not like you even true believers will not like you because the truth hurts and they just wonder why do we have to fight it's uncomfortable come on let's just be peaceful but all through those times, the liberals used every trick in the book to confuse and to fluster the Orthodox. They lied, they redefined terms, they manipulated, they spread slander, they tried to ruin the ministry of the Orthodox pastors. And when they could convince a magistrate to side with them, which they almost were always were able to do, very interestingly, they would try to force the church to adopt their positions. Very interesting thing. They were statists. This was something all of the heretics had in common. They were statists, and a statist is a person who believes in big government and who uses big government to get his way. They were all statists who tried to force their way upon the church. Now, the Orthodox pastors did not stoop to that level because they knew if truth was going to triumph, it had to triumph as truth, or it was not a victory at all. But in contrast, you had heretics like Arius who would... You know, really know how to schmooze these uh, these um, uh, um, uh, Christian, so-called Christian emperors, all of whom tended to side with the heretics. They knew how to schmooze them, and uh, Arius managed to get Athanasius banished five times. Actually, at least two of those times, if not more of those times, they actually came in to kill him, and the people hid him and snuck him off and carried him out. Most of his writings had to be done when he was in exile, and uh, not in exile, in hiding. Most of his writings were done. Now, let me just read you very quickly a brief account of how heretics used force to get their way two years before the Council of Chalcedon. And I'm writing from Rushduni's book here, reading from his book. He says, Dioscorus presided. Now, uh, uh, let me back up a sec. Let me just explain. Uh, the heresy was Eutychianism, and we're not going to get into all of the details of the various heresies, but Eutychianism believed that Jesus only had one nature. The Orthodox people believed he had two natures, a divine nature and a human nature, and without those two natures, there is no way he could be the mediator. But Eutychius was uh, the heretic who said, no, he he's only one nature. His humanity is so divinized that it's all a divine nature. And Dioscorus was the guy who was championing Uh, this at this council. So anyway, it says, Diaschurus presided and ruled with the aid of violent monks and armed soldiers. The form of orthodoxy was maintained by adopting the 12 anathematisms of Cyril. Cyril was a good guy. Whereas in reality, another doctrine was affirmed. The two-nature diophysite faith, that's what we hold to, right? That Jesus has two natures. So the two-nature diophysite faith was condemned and Flavianus, its champion, he was a good guy, was condemned. The proconsul, Proclus, with armed soldiers and chains, entered to compel the bishops to sign. After severe violence, 96 of them did, with many severely wounded. Flavianus, bishop of Constantinople, died within three days of the injuries he received. It was said that the monks kicked him savagely, and Dioscurus jumped on Flavianus as he lay upon the ground. The robber council gained a savage and impressive short-term victory, but it stood self-condemned by its disgraceful conduct. The victories of the true council of Ephesus were hammered out in the arena of faith, of consistent theological thinking. The victories of the false council rested on violence and were short-lived. Within two years, Chalcedon had denounced them. But before then, the opinion of all true Christians had condemned the council of robbers. Now, my point in reading that account there is fourfold. First of all, to show that both the church and Satan recognized how critically important the fine points of doctrine really were. Why would these guys be so hateful, so mean in trying to impose their uh, monophysite doctrine? Why would they be so hateful and mean? It's because I think Satan knows these are critical doctrines and if we do not hold to the right doctrine, the church will eventually be destroyed. And so he does everything he can to undermine those doctrines. And if Satan considers them important, we ought to consider them important as well. The second reason I read that account is to show that tyrants have recognized down through history that true Trinitarianism is a threat to their statist um, big government policies. Gary North said, again and again, the Christian emperors of of the Roman Empire sided with the heretics. Athanasius was banished at least five times in his life. Again and again, it was statism versus Christian orthodoxy, unquote. They recognized the doctrine of the Trinity, the doctrine of Christ's true natures, was something that was a hindrance to their statism. The third reason I read that bit of history was to show the way that heresies tend to work. They start off as meek and mild as a lamb. Okay, they come in and And they're all peace and love, and why can't we just get along and love one another? But once they've gained a foothold, you know, it's ruthless. They're ruthless in trying to get rid of orthodoxy. They initially call for free speech, but once they're in a majority, they not only put down free speech, but they shout down free speech. The church was in a fight for its life, and they knew it. Unfortunately, what's happened in modern America is we're in a fight for our life, but the church doesn't know it, and they don't even care. They don't see that doctrine is so critically important. And it's a sad thing. We need to make sure that the church is aware of the critical issues that are at stake. fourth reason I read that bit of history was to show how much of an absolute slander it is for Jehovah's Witnesses to say that it was the Roman emperors who imposed Trinitarianism upon the church. That's nonsense. It's the exact opposite that happened. <clears throat> in fact, it makes me mad when they say this because it was Arianism that was constantly going to the Emperor to get him pulled back in again when Arianism was fighting against orthodoxy. Athanasius felt so alone he felt like the whole emperor empire was against him, and somebody came up to him and said, "Give it up, the world is against you and he said, "Well, I guess Athanasius is against the world and um, He just felt like he was all alone despite the fact That he Was facing the fury of the Emperor. He stood fast against Arius despite the fact that a later Emperor sided with Nestorius the heretic there The church was willing to renounce as a heretic Nestorius knowing full well that they might face the wrath of the Emperor and so their hope was not in the power of the state. It was in the power of God to cause his truth to triumph. Ephesians four thirteen through 16, I think is one of the most encouraging passages that you can read because what it talks about is the fact that truth will triumph in history. At some point in history, it's going to triumph and that each generation has its part to play in the cause of truth triumphing over time. Very encouraging passage and we'll end the sermon by reading it. I do do have to tell you the story about what happened to Arius because I think it's just so cool Despite the fact that the church approved the wonderful doctrines of Nicaea the Emperor Insisted that the church has to reinstate Arius who had been excommunicated and that he had to become a leader in that church and um, There was a a guy uh, there who was the head pastor in Alexandria uh, by the name of Alexander uh, himself he was so heartbroken he lay prostrate on the floor sobbing and crying before the Lord and praying to him and here was his prayer he says if Arius comes tomorrow to the church take me away and let me not perish with the guilty but if thou pitiest thy church as thou dost pity it take Arius away lest when he enters heresy enter with him well the next morning Arius comes along with this huge procession playing instruments and celebrating the fact that the church is forced to take him back in And at one point, he's got this terrible gastric pain, and he goes running off to the latrine. And so the whole procession stopped, and they're waiting for him, and they wait, and they wait. And finally, the followers go to investigate, and they find that he has collapsed in a pool of blood and actually fallen headlong down into the latrine, into the outhouse. And I thought, praise Jesus, you know? (laughs) This heretic was done in by the prayers of the saints, and that's exactly what the what the Orthodox people said. They read Acts 118, which says, Who falling headlong, he burst open in the middle and all his entrails gushed out. And they said, This is the judgment of God upon Arius. Rushduni says, Arius' manner of death was used by the Orthodox to discomfort the heretics and encourage the saints. <laughs> and it was declared an act of God. The heretics preferred to forget it and modern heretics have eliminated this and like events from history books as being irrelevant it was however a providential conclusion to the great intellectual and spiritual battle of nicaea now i've chosen not to go into all of the finer details of trinitarianism because they're so interwoven with the doctrine of the hypostatic union of christ's human and divine natures in one person that i think it deserves a whole series of its own at some point in the future so we're not we're not going to deal with that today, but I thought it would be appropriate to end the series with several encouragements relative to doctrine in general first Doctrine does matter The word doctrine occurs 42 times in the New King James Bible But the concept of doctrine is all over the scripture in thousands of places and to hate doctrine is to hate God's truth It's a blasphemy these people who say oh, I don't care for doctrine, you know, I don't want doctrine in the church No, it's despising the truth of God and to avoid doctrine is to involve your life in innumerable errors uh, Down the road. The early church understood the practical importance of doctrine for all of life and they taught it They memorized it. They catechized their children and they made sure it got passed from generation to generation Because they knew the heretics were always there ready to come in and so what I want to ask you parents is How good have you been at? Catechizing your children can your children at any moment answer a question on what justification is or what the Trinity is or uh, What are the natures of Christ and if they cannot? They're going to be sucked in by heretics at some point They're going to be tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine I really really want you parents to be taking the catechizing of your children seriously and I have to Take this rebuke myself. I have not as been co- as consistent as I should be in catechizing my children get out your shorter catechism books it's marvelous concise doctrinal statements some of the most beautifully crafted statements on doctrine that you can get on the face of planet earth you've got it as a heritage it's been crafted by men who have been through the fires and I want you parents to begin catechizing your children I want you to begin memorizing those doctrines yourselves and you children even if your parents face me off you realize this is important and say, hey, I want to I memorize the catechism. Please, Dad, can I have a catechism book? We've got to be involved in that. Secondly, don't just study the doctrine. Talk about it. There is no better Sabbath conversation that you can have than talking about the intricacies of doctrine on Sunday afternoon. Get some rousing conversations going, you know, on the hypostatic union, you know, of Christ's nature. Talk about doctrine. You know, what a blessing it would be if the heretics of Omaha would complain about us like the heretics in Jerusalem complained about the people back then. They complained, look, you fill Jerusalem with your doctrine. Acts five Wouldn't that be cool if the heretics said, man, we're just really upset with Dominion Covenant Church. I mean, they're filling Omaha with their doctrine. Praise Jesus. Third, it's not enough to be against heresies. We must also be against heretics. Okay? We must be against heretics. The early church anathematized the heretics. What anathema means is calling down God's curses upon these people. That didn't seem very kind. But let me tell you, if you do not do that, you're not treating the heresies as being very important or being very dangerous. The Christian Evangelical Leaders Network here in the city, uh, they've done a lot of good things. But one of the discouragements for me is they, yes, they thought that That the doctrine of inerrancy and other doctrines were important enough to put in their doctrinal statement so far so good But they did not consider them important enough to be a screening process to keep the heretics out of the leadership council and It's worthless to be against doctrine if you're not against the heretics who are promoting that doctrine Here's what the scripture says Romans 16 verse 17 now I urge you brethren Note those who cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which you learned and avoid them. Avoid them? Why? Why would we want to avoid these people? It's not a very nice thing to do. Well, it's because bad company corrupts good morals. It's because God doesn't like them. It's because they are enemies of Christianity. It's because they are self condemned. But most importantly, it is because God commands you to avoid them. God commands it. Uh, Many churches in this city have taken a vow that they will never say anything negative about the Roman Catholic Church or mainline churches or any other church. That is a sinful vow to take because it contradicts the scripture who says we need to love people enough to be as iron sharpening iron, encouraging those people to come out of their errors. It is a sinful vow. Let me give you just a sampling of verses that show some of the ways in which we must take stands against heretics. Scripture says, Take note of those who cause heresies and offenses contrary to the doctrine which you have learned and avoid them. Romans sixteen seventeen says, take note of them and avoid them. Okay? Know who they are, have nothing to do with them. Not very kind, but it's very, very biblical. Here's another one. From such withdraw yourself. 1 Timothy 6, 3 through 5. From such people turn away. 2 Timothy 3, verse 5. Do not receive him into your house nor greet him, for he who greets him shares in his evil deeds. 2 John 10-11. through 11. He's saying you cannot, you cannot be neutral to such people. Uh, there was a heretic who died recently, and it just made me ill to my stomach to see some evangelical leaders eulogizing this individual. I pray for God's judgments against such people. And by the way, God can answer that judgment in one of two ways. He can convert that person, in which case Christ bears the judgment, right? Or he can take them out, but we ought not to be eulogizing heretics. Here are some more. Come out from among them and be separate. You can read the whole context in 2 Corinthians 6, 4 through 18. Expose them. Ephesians 5, verse 11. In 1 Timothy 1, 20. 2 Timothy 1.15, 2 Timothy 4.14, you see Paul identifying these heretics by name. Judge them according to the tradition which he received from us, says Paul in 2 Thessalonians 3.6. And I think I've given enough scriptures there where you can see we're not to be neutral to such doctrines. It's not enough to oppose false doctrines and then to be friends with God's enemies. That is just not going to cut it. Scripture says heresy and heretics must be treated seriously. Fourth, we should learn from the early church that their primary goal in life was not unity and preservation of the church as important as that is and as much as they loved that unity and the preservation of the church. Their primary goal was to preserve the truth. Okay, it was a defense of the church. Now it looked at times as if, if they stood up for truth, the church would be destroyed, but they valued truth so much that they took that risk truth was important to them it was so important to them and it needs to be important to us too many people today want unity at any expense but let me tell you brothers and sisters unity without truth is not unity it is pluralism unity without truth is not unity it is pluralism john first john 3 18 says my little children let us not love in word or in tongue, but in deed and in truth. And there's a number of passages that call us to love in the truth. Those two concepts are bound together, loving in the truth. And let me tell you that the early church was loving toward those heretics. To say that their, uh, their beliefs were heresy was the most loving thing that they could do to bring them to repentance and to restoration to the Lord. It's not a loving thing to leave people to swim in their heresy. It's not loving at all. And it was only because of the stubbornness and insistence of those heretics and their doctrines that eventually they had to be anathematized because of their dangers. And that brings me to the last admonition relative to doctrine. We should not get discouraged at the total lack of doctrinal knowledge that so many pastors and so many congregations have and give up as if the defense of orthodoxy is impossible to maintain. It is not impossible it's difficult yes and it may cause sacrifices but it's not impossible i want you to to continue to believe and to continue to advance the cause of truth in this city don't give up on reformation continue to pray for it when god has promised the triumph of truth in history it should be our goal to advance that truth let me end by reading the encouragement in ephesians four eleven through 16. and he himself gave some to be apostles some prophets some evangelists and some pastors and teachers now why did he give those officers next verse explains for the equipping of the saints for the work of the ministry you're the ministers out there i'm equipping you for that ministry okay for the equipping of the saints for the work of the ministry for the edifying of the body of christ till we all come to the unity of the faith now that hasn't happened yet but that's god's goal in history So we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect, or some translate it, a mature man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we should no longer be children, tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men and the cunning of craftiness of deceitful plotting, but speaking the truth in love may grow up in all things into him who is the head, Christ from whom the whole body joined and knit together by what every joint supplies, according to the effective working by which every part does its share, causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. And that's my prayer. May this church value truth. And may you love people enough to bring the truth into their lives. And may you seek to apply that truth in all of life. Amen. Father God, thank you so much for the truth that you have entrusted as a body of truth, as a tradition, a paradosis you have given into our lives. Father, I pray that we would not find our lives judged on judgment day because we have let that slip and we have failed to catechize our children in the uh, doctrinal truths that you have handed down and that the, the martyrs, many of these church fathers, having their eyes gouged out and their arms. Uh, torn off, and uh, many other things happening to them because they held to orthodoxy. Oh, God, I pray that we would not despise the sacrifices that they have made by being lazy. Help us, Father, to be a diligent people who love the truth, who study the truth, who pass that truth on. And I pray, oh, God, that you would be glorified as we seek to live it out. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.